Hello. On this episode of Church in Maine, we talk about not getting the full story of Palestinian life in Gaza and the West Bank. This is Church in Maine. Hello, and welcome to Church and Maine, the podcast at the intersection of faith and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Church and Maine is a podcast that looks for God in the midst of issues affecting the church and the larger society. You can learn more about the podcast, listen to past episodes, and donate by checking us out at churchandmaine.org or churchandmaine.substack.com. Consider subscribing to the podcast. You can do that on Substack or on your favorite podcast app and leave a review. That helps others find this podcast. Many of us might think that we know the whole story about of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. If you listen to the news or follow things on social media, you'll hear stories of lives lost in the ongoing war with Israel in the wake of the October 7th attacks. Usually when we hear these stories, they are almost always in response to something that Israel has done, either in the past or in the very near present. I mean, the way that the Palestinians are depicted is almost always very one-dimensional. There's not very, there's not much talk about any other voices in Palestinian life. The only voice that we hear is one of protest against Israel. Now, I need to be clear, that is not to say that the talk of protest against Israeli actions is, is not ever justified. I think that there are times that it is. It's just that it seems to be the only voice that we ever hear. But unlike most groups, Palestinians are not of one opinion on anything. Sometimes there is criticism of leadership, especially criticism of Hamas. But these voices usually get silenced, both within places like Gaza and in the wider world. Today, I talked to Episcopal priest and frequent guest on Church and Maine, Frederick Schmidt, about the silence of Palestinian voices and how many in the West, in some ways, are not allowing to really even speak out uh, against things such as fundamentalist Islam by not allowing these other voices. In December 2023, he wrote an essay for Pathios entitled Christian Leaders, Hamas, and Fundamentalist Islam, where he writes that, that comparative religion has in some ways missed some of the dangers of an extremist version of Islam and its role on October 7th. He writes, the discussion about the murderous behavior of Hamas has been reduced to political categories or a conversation about religion that considers all religious differences to be all about the same thing, and they are not. The significance of radical fundamentalist Shiite convictions that drove the attack on Israel on October 7th cannot be ignored or subliminated. So, today, we're going to talk about having a fuller conversation about Palestinians, life in Gaza, Hamas, 
and fundamentalist Islam in light of October 7th. A little bit about Frederick Schmidt. He is currently the vice rector of Good Shepherd Episcopal Church um, outside of Nashville. As I said before, he is an Episcopal priest. He's also a spiritual director, a retreat facilitator, conference leader, writer, and academic. Before his current position, Schmidt held the Reuben P. Job Chair of Spiritual Formation at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois, and directed the Job Institute for Spiritual Formation. And today we will talk about the dangers of, of, um, of spiritual formation. So, without further ado and without any further uh, flubs there like that one, here is the Reverend Frederick Schmidt. Frederick, it is good to have you back. This Thanks. is I've, this has kind of been a tour of having. I've had a few interviews where it's been several people that I've had on several times. Yeah. So this is kind of the rerun tour. It seems like for <laughs> for the podcast. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I don't don't mind being a rerun. <laughs> it's not a problem at all. I have no problems with that. So the reason that I um, have you here is that I wanted to talk a little bit about the article you wrote. And this was, it's been a while, but not too long a while, about a month ago. Um, and the title of it is Christian Leaders, Hamas, and Fundamentalist Islam. Um, and the reason I wanted to talk to you about it was um, kind of an interest um, a few, maybe when the whole kind of Israel Hamas thing kind of started back in the fall. I saw a link somewhere in a, a, a Substack that I read about. Um, I think it's called Whispered in Gaza. It's a it's a project that is done where they have been able to go in and interview people who live in Gaza and are able to kind of present a viewpoint that we don't always hear about um, Gazans um, who live there because I think we have this one voice, which sadly usually tends to be the voice of Hamas, um, and don't really hear the complexity and the um, kind of diversity of that. Of, of that, But so that was kind of, when I read your article, I thought a lot about that, but I think maybe it would help if, for people who haven't read the article to kind of give a, 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 syn a synopsis of what it is um, you were trying to get at. Happy to do that. And and by the way, I I did actually uh, see some of the work done with Whispered in Gaza, and, okay. and I thought yeah. that a lot of what I've heard in that project resonates with what I was observing in the article. Uh, when I wrote the article, I I didn't attempt to kind of treat the whole question of what's going on in Gaza and in Israel from the vantage point of a historian. And I wasn't trying to kind of give an exhaustive 
sort of picture of the political dynamics that are involved, uh, knowing what's going on either among Palestinians or among Israelis uh, politically in any kind of exhaustive fashion is a specialization all its own. But I reflected back on the time that I served as dean of St. George's College on the east side of Jerusalem Hmm. and also served as a canon of the Anglican Cathedral in Jerusalem. And the east side of Jerusalem is the dominantly Arab Mm -hmm. side of of Jerusalem. And what I what I wanted to note was was that m- my experience during what was a comparatively brief period of time in meeting people was uh and conversations that I had with people was the fact that Palestinians r- reflected back to me uh with some regularity that they felt that they were really disadvantaged by the kind of leadership that they had. And one of the experiences that stood out in my own mind uh, from that period was I spent some time in Amman, Jordan, uh, and I was given a tour by an Anglican priest who who was also uh, a Jordanian, who showed me the city, and then we stopped finally opposite a fairly large home with a wall and an iron wrought iron gate and a large uh, marble-esque plaza in front of it and a fountain. And I asked him, I said, well, what is this? And he said, well, this is the home of the ambassador of the Palestinian Authority to Jordan. And he said, this is the way representatives of the Palestinian Authority live while Gazans live with open sewers at the same time. And uh, and that kind of that was kind of a distillation of the frustration that Palestinians have had with their leadership. And I I made the point that uh, that we we don't appreciate the frustration uh, that is kind of embedded in those sorts of conversations. They don't, they don't figure prominently in American conversations about the tensions between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, and I also noted that, that one of the sort of glaring problems from the theological and the and the ecclesiastical side of the difficulty is that uh church leaders don't seem to recognize it not even church leaders in the holy land seem to acknowledge that it's a problem and i suggested in the article that perhaps part of the problem is is that especially in the american setting our uh, our approach to these issues either tends to be entirely secular and political, or if it's religious, we ignore the complexities that are introduced into the tensions there by fundamentalist Muslim factions like Hamas. I mean, essentially, I would argue that Hamas is a, is a genocidal death cult. 
but it's a genocidal death cult predicated on certain Muslim extremist convictions ab- about what life in Islam is all about and what the mission of Islam is all about. And I, I think because we've been shaped by a comparative religions dialogue and because we've been shaped by the ecumenism movement, we, we hesitate to critique that version of Muslim life uh, because we're afraid that it will either seem judgmental or it will or it will seem islamophobic and i think because we've surrendered to all of that uh we we overlook the fact that just as there are fundamentalist expressions of christianity that are problematic there are also fundamentalist expressions of islam that are fun, that are problematic and and so the article was about trying to say that in this context, religious leaders and Christian religious leaders, uh, in particular, at least in terms of my my own orientation to this, need to be fairly forthright in noting that that factor has contributed to to the turmoil in the Holy Land and in Gaza. How would you define how how it has kind of contributed to the problems that are happening in the Middle East? That kind of does has it? Do you think that it's enabled some of the problems? Or well, I think I think broadly speaking, it has enabled uh, enabled the situation because uh, what you what you see on the streets in the United States, for example, are are demonstrators who parrot Hamas slogans. And I think there's no doubt that Hamas has actually been uh, been using those kinds of demonstrations and that kind of public pressure to try to leverage American political opinion in a way that will leverage Israeli opinion and behavior. Uh, I think that it has contributed to confusion about what's going on because our failure to kind of name those dynamics have left people with the impression that maybe this is entirely a political dispute without religious underpinnings. So I think it's left people with an incomplete picture of what's involved. And and I think it's also drawn the uh, capacity of of Christian leaders into question in terms of in terms of them really being uh, critically thinking voices in the dispute. In other in other words, Christian leaders themselves uh, seem to lurch from a kind of uh, pro Israeli point of view that's completely un, uncritical of what Israelis do, and they simply pendulum swing uh, to the other extreme, and they, and they become uh, entirely pro-Palestinian and anti 
uh, anti-Israeli. The, the other thing, too, is, is that it also obscures the fact that Hamas is not necessarily representative of all Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that that's a real problem as well, because uh, there's, there's certainly room to uh, argue, I believe, that, that Palestinians are, are living with adverse circumstances. And the Whispers in Gaza program illustrates just how uh, problematic uh, Hamas's leadership uh, is uh, right now, how problematic Arafat uh, was when he was in charge of the PLO, um, how problematic the Palestinian Authority has been since then with Abbas. And all of that's left unexamined because we simply kind of uh, parrot what we're hearing at the extremes. Do you think that there's also a fear of, and I don't necessarily agree with it, but a fear of what they might say is is racism, that it's primarily white um, Western people and they don't want to criticize um, persons of color in this case, and so they don't. Um, that's also some of that behind it. And, and I, I, as I said, I have a problem with that and I can talk more about it, but I'm just wondering if that's. Sure. Well, I, th- I think you're right. And I'd be interested in hearing more about what you have, what you think about that, but I think it is. And I think it's, it's, it, it, there's a whole set of categories that have also reinforced that mm-hmm. uh, the categories of oppressor oppressed. Uh, the uh, the categories of colonizer and colonized uh, uh, have been kind of wed to the racial issues, uh, and and the whole mix has been offered as a supposedly more potent uh, argument for a pro-Hamas position. Um, the problem with it, of course, is is that Israeli society is actually much more diverse racially than that, mm-hmm. more diverse religiously than that. I mean, it's it, a lot of Americans are surprised to learn that there are Palestinians who are Israeli citizens uh, with with full rights, full right. participation in a democratic. Society, they they seem to be surprised to find that uh, Israelis uh, differ pretty widely racially and in terms of their ethnic origins and all of the rest of it. Uh, they're they're shocked when you point out that you can hardly call them colonizers because they don't have a colonizing power to go back to. You know, they're not Belgians who can go back from Belgian colonies in Africa or mm-hmm. French colonists who can go back to France. They, they have nowhere to go. And, uh, and, and no, one's, no one's screaming for Europeans to take them back if they vacate Israel. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's such a gross oversimplification of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I... I... I think what I, the reason I think that I have a problem with it is because I think that it, that view in and of itself can be racist um, because it, it it's very 
limiting and how it views um, the Palestinian people. Um, right. That they don't understand, and Islam, they don't understand the kind of the complexities of of either um, group, and kind of flatten it to just one way of seeing things. And right. I don't think that that's fair. I, I mean, I think that there are a lot of different people, different opinions of of Palestinian views. Um, people who are maybe critical of Israel, but they're not in favor of what happened on October seventh. There are those who, you know, don't support Hamas and have paid for it in, in, in many ways. And so I don't think that it's helping. And I think it, it's kind of a very simplistic view that it, it, it's that kind of a, well, it reminds me of some of the views that sometimes people have had of African-Americans or things of the, you know, or, or Native Americans or something that, you know, we're the simple, happy people or something and not humans that are are complex um and that we should be respected not because we're the the simple or happy people but because we are made in the image of god and and right. that means that all of that means that we're really complex people too that's right i think that's i think that's exactly it yes there's a there's been a trend um to reintroduce into our vocabulary i think a form of racism uh, that is uh, that I think is is really problematic, and uh, it's it's in to your point. It's interesting how uh, those those forms of racial dialogue have been kind of transposed or imposed from the American setting onto uh, settings across the globe. Erasing all the complexities in both places. I agree, uh, and it. That, I don't think that that helps in any side. No, and and you know, and and interestingly enough, I mean, the Palestinians have been subjected to their to their own kind of uh, racist discrimination over the years by other Arab bodies as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean. Uh, it's probably it's probably more complicated uh, than simply racial issues. There's there are probably issues of potential political unrest and uh, potential presence of radicalized elements and so forth. But you take, for example, Egypt's role in all of this and their control over the one exit from Gaza that might actually benefit refugees. If they could be processed and allowed to enter in Egypt, even even if it were only to move to the other side of the Gazan border for safety, mm-hmm. uh, but here but here they are trapped by the Egyptian insistence uh, that they're not going to be allowed to enter uh, enter into Egypt. So this kind of leads me to think also about, and and one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is when it comes to especially mainline um, denominations and how they deal with this issue. Right. And again, it also feels at times really flat. Um, I remember, I haven't read it all, but I, and his name right now is escaping me, but it was the um, kind of the pastor from, um, Bethlehem from the Lutheran Church, um, uh-huh. 
And his saying, which I guess has been going around, was very standard from what I would expect or would expect people to have want to hear that, you know, the Israelis are, are the bad people and we're the good people. But again, it felt like with churches, we don't really seek to understand the full issue. It's like we want a certain narrative. And I, and it's not just the people in the pews, it's the people in leadership as well. And, yeah. you know, I guess my question is, why do we not want to seek something? I mean, we accuse, especially evangelicals, especially on, on this issue of being very simplistic when it comes to just supporting the Israelis. But it seems like on, on the mainline side, we're doing the same thing, just the opposite. And so why are we not willing to embrace kind of that, all of the stories that are taking place and all of the complexity that's taking yeah. place? That's a hard one to answer, uh, and it's embedded in a in in what I perceive to be a, a real cultural shift uh, over the last couple of decades. Mm -hmm. uh, they, there's it, there seems to be this sort of move that's that's happened that in instead of the argument being as it as it might have been in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, that there is a, a greater complexity that is suppressed by certain kinds of fundamentalist categories. That what's now happened is, is that we've, we've lapsed into this cultural pattern as a church mm -hmm. uh, that in, indulges it doesn't insist on honoring the complexity, but indulges in an alternative ideology. Mm. And uh, I'm not sure that the that the reasons for that shift on the on the one side and the other are always quite the same. I, I think that I think that uh, certainly the language people would use. Uh, uh, on, and I hate these terms, but on the right and the left, uh, are probably different, you know, but they're, but we seem to have lapsed into a setting where we're, we're left with a kind of zero sum game. That means that if I can't acknowledge that there's some complexity that my position doesn't take fully into account. Mm -hmm. Then what I've done is I've lost, I've lost the argument, hmm. uh, and I, I and I suppose it might be because of the fact that um, ultimately, if there's a common denominator uh, between both sides of the argument, it's because politics have become so important, even in the church, mm -hmm. and and our mode of political. Uh, uh, discourse is is the discourse of of uh, conflict uh, and and a zero sum game uh, where we kind of ape ape the politics of it. You know, you you everyone necessarily kind of advocates that there's a certain kind of solution to a problem, mm -hmm. or that maybe 
some piece of a problem needs to is is more urgent or more central than other parts of it. And so we get out there with a with a position that corresponds to that issue uh, or corresponds to that problem as a solution. And then when someone comes in along and says, well, okay, so that's part of it, but you're not taking into account this issue or that issue or some other issue. Uh, you're left with either granting that there's greater complexity and maybe you need a more complex solution or you simply deny that. Hmm. Um, so you take, for example, uh, the conflict between, uh, between uh, Israelis and, and Palestinians. You, uh, it, it's hard to take into account the complexity of Israeli politics, that there, that there are people who are, uh, are and have been always in favor of some sort of resolution to the problem. Uh, and actually the percentages have been quite high for some mm -hmm. sort of resolution to the problem. Uh, and then there have been people who have been from time to time more hard line. Uh, but the di public discourse doesn't acknowledge that. And the public discourse doesn't acknowledge that there's a difference between Palestinians and Hamas. That, you know, that there are certain Palestinian uh, needs and certain, uh, certain deprivations that the Palestinians are struggling with uh, that are not one in the same with what Hamas has is its fault. Hmm. Um, so you you just we just don't get a complete picture of things, and one would have hoped, I guess, that Christians, if if we're really interested in peace, um, I one would hope that Christians would actually start by trying to nurture mutual appreciation between groups mm -hmm. because I, I know at least from the work that I've done in dispute resolution, if you anathematize another person's views, if you attribute the worst possible motives to them, if you don't attempt to understand why they are where they are, then there's no possibility of dispute resolution. Effective dispute resolution and, and peacemaking always uh, begins with people on both sides of a conflict being heard mm -hmm. and, and granting that, that what they have to say uh, is, might be said with good motives involved. Of course, then one wonders, though, is peace really the goal? Well, I think that's I think that that's a serious question right now. Uh, I you know you um, you look at the current situation in the Middle East, um, and uh, you suggest that. 
uh, any one of the things that's happened repeatedly uh, as the peace process has made progress in the Middle East on multiple occasions in that history, there have been plans forwarded that would have been a compromise mm-hmm. and and would have involved a listening process of one sort or another. Uh, Oslo offered a possibility in that regard. Uh, Ehud Barak uh, offered a Palestinian state in Gaza and 97% of the West Bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ehud Olmert, uh, who was also a prime minister, uh, offered to withdraw from the entire West Bank and partition Jerusalem on a demographic basis. Uh, and uh and every and those aren't the only occasions and and every time uh they got to the point of actually formalizing an arrangement uh Palestinian leadership said oh wait but we want right of return so this isn't going to be adequate because because we we really want to go back to what we believed existed when the British Empire was still in control of the entire area. And of course And that's impossible. That's impossible because because that means then that the Israelis have to have somewhere to go. Mm-hmm. And as I said earlier, they're not colonizers in that sense. They're refugees themselves. And in a sense, you know, um, it, it was the West. It was European countries. It was the British Empire. It was the United States that threw Jewish refugees and Palestinians and Arabs together. <laughs> uh, and in part because they, they were so slow to confront the Holocaust. And and so you you wonder well are you really interested in peace if you're going to if you're going to predicate a solution to the problem that's that difficult and that old by by simply saying I want what I want uh, I don't think you are interested in peace. And of course, the formal position of Hamas is the elimination of Israel entirely. Yeah. So how can can Christians foster a different talk so that it isn't what it has been in the past, which sometimes doesn't distinguish between Palestinians and kind of fundamentalism um, and can really deal with kind of a more complex situation because it feels like you know i would hope that the goal would be to get people to think about this issue um instead of being given a, to- a story um or given a w- being told what to think um which sometimes seems to be what we're being asked to do um but to really be able to have a much more rich and complex discussion and right right well 
I think if Christians are going to provide any kind of guidance from a situation like this, and it's uh, uh, and and Christians probably have more of an opportunity to inform dialogue than they do to necessarily inform the political process, but but perhaps dialogue will indirectly affect uh, the political process. Wh- what we have to do, I think, is we have to set aside ideological lenses mm-hmm. and look at the history for what it is, um, which leaves no one entirely in the right and no one entirely in the wrong. And, um, and, and that particular conversation can then that conversation about the history of the situation and the current state of the situation can then lead to an appreciation of the uh, the mutual concerns or the individual concerns of both Palestinians and uh, and Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, I think we also. If we're going to be good faith actors in a conversation of that kind of thing, we have to distinguish between terrorism uh, and uh, and and the people who might be misrepresented by terrorism mm-hmm. and the interests of nation states. Uh, I mean, I. <laughs> I'm appalled to find so many Christians who are who are ready to sort of just echo and repeat terrorist slogans of one sort or another. Mm-hmm. And then you know, uh, once once you've sort of sorted those things out, then I think we can we can then begin to talk reasonably about what. Uh, what resolution might look like, remembering, of course, that that at least for Americans, we stand outside that situation, and we cannot claim to fully understand what either group faces or fears, or what it would mean to to craft a resolution. Uh, I, you know, I think that, uh, it's, it's really difficult to, impossible, in fact, to sit in judgment on what other people ought to do when we ourselves are not immersed in that situation and we don't we don't face the consequences of either the problem or any potential resolution to it. I mean, um, we can't appreciate what the Palestinians are facing, being led by a succession of leaders who have never really been chosen in a truly democratic environment, although they've they tried to make it look democratic. Uh, 
we we can't begin to completely understand what it means to be displaced over and over again uh we can't know what it what it means to have a group like Hamas in charge of Gaza only to have them spend all of their time preparing the groundwork for launching an attack against Israel on the other hand we can't begin to understand what Israelis are facing uh to have been surrounded by nations that have declared openly declared their hostility uh to them uh we can't begin to understand now what they face with a with a kind of constellation of terrorist organizations that are directly armed funded and directed by iran um we we can't know what it is to live in a country that's scarcely the size of new jersey mm. and that an f16 can fly from its northernmost border to its southernmost border in something around 17 minutes mm. people who live with two friendly neighbors and two oceans have no idea what that's like and that's not even to, that doesn't even begin to drill down even deeper to the uh, personal losses and grief on both sides of the equation so i think there's a lot of humility that has to be exercised even as it, even as we try to facilitate a conversation I suppose, you know, Dennis, to be honest with you, when it comes right down to it, if I was going to have a conversation about this with people, I suppose I would hope that they would go away realizing, if nothing else, that it's far, far more complicated than they recognize. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that is something that I've kind of long believed about the Middle East is that it's. I think there's a temptation to make the story into good guys and bad guys or, you know, right. white hats and black hats. And that I think the reality is there's a lot of gray, a lot of gray hats and that the story isn't so simple. Um, but I think that we want it to be simple and it's not. That's right. I think that's right. Yeah. Well, thank you for this discussion. Um, we had another thing issue, but I think we're going to have to leave that for another day. Okay. But I hope that this is a good um, discussion um, for others um, to kind of talk about this issue because it's it's a complex one. But I, I'm hoping it can also lead to some discussions on other issues because I think this is not the only issue where we kind of try to flatten everything to to kind of a very simple or ideological story and not a not something that's much more complex. I think you're right. And I hope that begins to change, Dennis. Me too. So if people want to um, catch up on some of what you've written, where can they find you? Uh, I write it for Patheos uh, on the Progressive Christian uh, channel, and they can find it by Googling Frederick Schmidt Patheos, and that'll that'll take you to that work. Uh, and uh, and there's some books uh, 
that you can also find along the way. None of them on this particular topic. All right. Thanks for asking, Dennis. You're welcome. Well, we will uh, talk again soon because there is another issue I want to talk to you about. But until then, we'll see you later. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to this conversation. I've included some links to Reverend Schmidt's article in Pathios, um, and also links to uh, what we described in the in the conversation, Whispered in Gaza. I think it's a truly fascinating series of videos um, and voices on the on life in the Palestinian enclave of Gaza. Um, and so I think again, it gives you a fuller picture of what's going on. It doesn't negate some of the other stories, especially that Palestinians think, especially in relation well, with Israel. But it does, I think, give a fuller picture than what we normally will um, hear from our news sources or in social media or in other places. Um, I also just wanted to let you know that I do um, another podcast uh, called Lectionary Q. This is a podcast that focuses on a text from the Revised Common Lectionary, um, and adds in a reflection and some questions. This is something I started back in the fall of 2022, but stopped basically just due to busyness, because of course I have a, another life of um, being a pastor. Uh, but I've started up again late last fall, so you can find it and subscribe to the podcast by going to lectionaryq, all one word, dot substack, dot com. So that is it for this episode of Church in Maine. Remember to rate and review this episode on your favorite podcast app so that others can find it. Consider donating uh, so that we can continue to produce more episodes, and you can find a link to donate in the show notes. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Again, thank you so much for listening. Take care, Godspeed, and I will see you very soon. Hey.